This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Thanks for tuning in to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. I'm excited about today's show. There's a lot happening today. We're going to be talking to Ed Valley here in just a few minutes about what to expect down in South America. And I'm also going to have him give us an update about uh, what could be going on in our backyards this weekend. And then Jerry Hagstrom of the Hagstrom Report is going to join me in segment two. He's talking dairy this week. He's going to fill us in on what's happening in that space. And in segment three, I'm very excited. We're going to be talking to Paige Gilliard. Paige is an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation, and she is on the team that will be presenting the Sackett's Clean Water Act case to the Supreme Court. It was just announced the Supremes are going to hear that case. Paige will give us an update and really fill us in on what the Sackett's have been through battling the EPA for almost 17 years now. And then we're going to wrap up the day, talk the markets with Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing. But first, let's turn our focus down to South America. Ed Valley of Empire Weather is joining me this morning. And Ed, looks like we've got some rains coming across Brazil today. Yeah, how are you doing, Mike? It seems like things are uh, turning around a little bit for some of us here in South America with quite a bit of rain recently in Argentina. And it, it looks like it's moving into Brazil, like you said. So, Dwayne, th- or, I'm sorry, Ed, this is a pretty big pattern shift that's happened down there south of the border. Tell us what happened. Is this a, a, a La Nina impact? Yeah, so it's interesting because La Nina generally tends to lean on the drier side in Argentina and southern Brazil. So this change actually came from what we call the MJO, which is basically a fancy term for explaining where the convection and thunderstorm activity is in the Pacific uh, equatorial region of the ocean, which is funny, right? It's a very interesting, complex parameter we look at, and we're seeing the MJO kind of move around a little bit, and and that really has a big impact on South American weather. And what we've just seen here is is more of a uh, less of a, a La Nina impact here, which has led to more rainfall in parts of Argentina and southern Brazil, and now we're starting to see that shift a little bit back toward Uh, a more typical La Nina look. So it's a wetter interlude in in parts of Argentina. They will head back drier here into next week. But I think southern Brazil, who's been very dry of late, um, we're going to continue to see this look favorable, I think, here moving forward for additional rainfall. Well, you know, on that additional rainfall front, Ed, you get up into the northern portions of Brazil, and they have had more than ample rainfall. These systems that are coming up from the south, are they going to add continued flood pressure onto the north uh, lands of Brazil? It's interesting. So last week, we actually saw for the first time in what feels like since September, we've had less than average rainfall in central Brazil. So while We saw all that moisture down south in Argentina. We got a little break from the rain up in central Brazil, which certainly is not a bad thing. Like you said, they've they've been really seeing it this year with respect to rainfall. So we saw it back off this past week, and I think this weekend and, and into next week, we will see at least a resurgence in some moisture here. So the folks that might have uh, dried out a little bit were likely to see additional moisture 
even in central Brazil as early as this weekend, and, and that should continue here into next week as well. Okay. All right. Additional rainfall ahead. Might be watching the markets to see how the soybeans react to this additional rain. But, Ed, for those of us who aren't watching South American weather every single day, what has the soil moisture profile done? Have these rains been enough to actually do some substantive uh, d damage to the drought down there, or are these just timely rains for those crops that are growing? That's a great question, Mike. And it's, it's the answer is probably somewhere in between. So, Again, I'm a meteorologist. I don't pretend to be anything other than that, of course. And the big thing we've seen just from a soil moisture perspective down in, in Argentina, it's been very wet over the last 10 days or so. They've seen anywhere from three to, in some cases, as much as 10 inches of rainfall locally. So I think from that respect, you know, I, I think we are seeing an improvement. So the, but the issue is, is prior to this uh, dry period, we had a lot of heat as well. So I think if anything, this rain kind of stopped the bleeding down in Argentina because we were dealing with quite a bit of hot and dry weather. Uh, and then as you get up into southern Brazil, we haven't gotten that moisture that we need quite yet. So this week we're seeing better moisture in the soil down in Argentina, but we're still struggling in southern Brazil, which is why the rains that are coming this weekend and into next week are just so important because if we can get those rains on the order of one to four inches through the end of the weekend, I think that's really going to help replenish those soil moisture profiles. Okay, Ed, let's look ahead a month, six weeks, that second crop safrina corn will be growing down there in Brazil. As you look out at La Nina and that MJO that you mentioned, what are your expectations? Could this dryness return while they're producing that uh, second corn crop? Yeah, so there, there's going to be, as long as we're in a La Nina, there's going to be a risk of some dry risk returning to southern Brazil. Now, the further north you go, again, in La Nina, the better off you're going to be. So our friends in Mato Grosso and surrounding areas, I think the risk there for a, a prolonged period of dryness is lower. However, as we know, there's still quite a bit of soybeans grown in, in southern Brazil, or excuse me, safrina grown in southern Brazil. And the issue here is exactly where, um, you know, that dryness were to set up. So I think, again, the further north you go, I think our friends up north are okay. But the further south we travel here, there's going to be at least some dry risk because of that La Nina background state. Now, we're seeing La Nina weaken as well. So that's another piece to this puzzle. And as that occurs, that may actually allow more moisture to, to return to southern Brazil in time as we head through that safrina crop season. But again, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty with how La Nina will behave, which will dictate a lot of that forecast. That makes sense, Ed. There's a lot of uncertainty, or at least some uncertainty, about who's going to get snow up here in North America over the next few days. Just looked at the radar. It looks like that system is moving its way through the eastern Corn Belt. Where does it head from here? Yeah, so that one's a weak one. That's going to be a little system that kind of moves along a cold front into the northeast. That could provide the northeast with a bigger snowstorm here into the weekend. Uh, but for, for our friends in the Ag Belt here, it looks like this is just a minor snow event, a coating to an inch or two out that way, in a year that really we haven't seen much snow in Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio. So I think, you know, as much as it can be an annoyance at times, I think some people might not mind seeing a little bit of snow out that way. I think you're probably right. Ed, look out a little farther west. There's, at least on my radar, I'm not showing anything. Do we have any activity as you look out over the next uh, three or four days here in the western half of the U.S.? Yeah, so I, I'm not seeing much. There's a little bit of snow shower activity in the Dakotas here today. 
but I tell you, through the weekend, we're going to be relatively mild for this time of the year. It could be much worse, as we all know. Uh, and it doesn't look like we see any big systems through at least Sunday. One thing to just put on your radar, no pun intended, is I think we're going to get cold again middle and end of next week. So that could be the next item on the agenda weather-wise. Well, it is winter. That cold is expected, even though it does get a little tiresome. Ed Valley of Empire Weather, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. No worries. Thank you, Mike. And folks, stick around when we return Jerry Hagstrom of the Hagstrom Report with an update on ag policy. Stay with us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. DTN and Progressive Farmer bring producers the best content in agriculture. Each day our editors post unique content to our website, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions. DTN and Progressive Farmer provide insights throughout the year to questions like, what is the outlook for corn yields in 2021? Will feed prices surge? What about land prices? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? For more intelligence like this, visit DTNPF.com. Recently on AOA, Josh Linville, the director of fertilizer from Stone X, is joining me. And Josh, urea price is down for the second week in a row. Is the peak behind us? We're uh, we're finally starting to kind of get ahead of this thing. It seems like we've killed enough demand. You know, we've got production back up and running here globally. But at the same point, some of the stuff going on with Russia, you can certainly paint a picture that we've got another peak in front of us. I think we've got a heck of a roller coaster ahead of us. How should producers be handling purchases? Of- I think you've got to keep having a conversation out there with your supplier. We've always been you know, focused on the, the pricing of it and supplies and things like that. But we've also got to remember, we're midway through January. We are not that far away from spring starting up. And as hard as it is for a lot of the farmers to pull the trigger on buying the product, that retailer is in the exact same boat. The more we can have the conversation with them, and you don't even have to pull the trigger, but at least give them a heads up of, hey, I need this much, I need that much for this time frame, that time frame. Give them a fighting chance for trying to get those supplies in place so that they're ready for you when you show up on the door. For the information important to rural America, join us on AOA. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. 
U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA. We're working on getting Jerry Hagstrom lined up to join us here in just a moment. But before we get to Jerry, we did have some news coming from the government this morning. Looking at fourth quarter GDP growth. This is the last three months of 2021. Boy, our economy is growing. According to uh, to the U.S. government, gross domestic product GDP expanded at a 7% rate in the fourth quarter. That's a big jump. It's a big jump up even from the third quarter, 2021, which saw GDP grow at 2.3%. So it jumped 5%, almost 5%, I should say, in the final three months of the year. That is a phenomenal growth number. And you'll notice 6.9% GDP growth. Boy, 7% inflation growth. That is some indication that the economy is getting warm and that people are getting out there and spending a little bit of money. Hopefully it means we're shrugging off uh, the COVID pandemic and some of the restrictions. We'll see how that plays out longer term. I also wanted to touch on a uh, an issue developing down in South America in Brazil we are seeing Brazilian farmers make fewer sales than they have in years past. This, of course, isn't surprising. Uh, they are, I should say, they have been looking at that drought across uh, South America, across Brazil, particularly the southern states. We heard it from Ed Valley just a few minutes ago. That, I think, spooked a lot of farmers. They're watching these prices climb, and we're seeing the Brazilians be a little bit less aggressive in their sales. Um, taking a look at some of the numbers reported here by Archer Daniels Midland, of course, ADM. Uh, you folks are probably familiar with that name in the world of, of grain trading. Um, we are seeing down in Brazil, Currently, they are about 37% sold on their new crop soybeans. This would be the crop that's growing in the field down there right now. Their five-year average is at 40%. So they're about 3% behind the eight ball versus where they were on the five-year average. However, you look back to last year, Brazilian soybeans were about 58% sold at this time of the season. And of course, that makes sense. We saw a lot of currency fluctuations at the early part of 2021. We saw Brazilian growers getting nervous about about the crop, but of course, if they sold 40% of their crop this time of year and that crop kept shrinking, that percentage that was sold has continued to rise. Corn, it's an even bigger story in Brazil. As of uh, tail end of last week, excuse me, early part of this week, Brazilians had sold about 19% of their expected corn production this year. I would imagine a lot of that that's been sold is the first crop uh, uh, corn down in Brazil, probably not the safrina, uh, seeing a lot of sales of that quite yet. They're at 19% this year. The five-year average is at 29% sold. So they are lagging in their corn sales by about 10%. Some of the thoughts are that Brazilian farmers looking around at the rising input cost situation, looking around at a potential uh, change in their presidential leadership later on this year, they will be having an election. There's policy concerns in addition to agronomic and market concerns. So some growers might be holding back some sales to use as a hedge 
cash in the off chance that the currency markets do get wild after the uh, the presidential election. Um, we're also seeing similar stories play out in Argentina. In fact, I said similar. It's the opposite story, I should say. Argentinians are are also well below. They're about 5% below on their soybean sales so far. Of course, the Argentinian crop being grown farther south in South America, it's the equivalent of growing farther north, right? In the northern hemisphere, the farther we get from the equator, the colder it is. Those crops in South America, excuse me, in Argentina are still somewhat behind where the crops in Brazil are. Looking over at some business news here in the United States. Excuse me, this was announced yesterday that Viterra, uh, excuse me, Glencore, has made an agreement to buy Gavilon. I should say this is Glencore's Viterra unit. Uh, a lot of our, our listeners in the Northern Plains, perhaps some of you folks up in Canada might be familiar with that name, Viterra. Uh, this has been Glencore's grain trading unit in North America since they rebranded here about five or six years ago. And they have been looking. Glencore has been wanting to make moves against the ABCDs of grain trading. Of course, that's ADM, Archer Daniels Midland that we talked about earlier. It's Bungie, it's Cargill, and it's Louis Dreyfus are, of course, the big four. And Glencore has been wanting to push its way into that community. They want to be one of the big dogs out there in the grain trading world. And so they have been looking at making some acquisitions. It did take two or three years for them to find somebody but they have acquired Gavilon. Uh, Viterra uh, uh, released a statement. They said, quote, the acquisition of Gavilon firmly establishes Viterra in an important U.S. grains and oilseeds markets. Viterra is now present in all major agricultural origination regions around the world. This will enable the company to take advantage of structural opportunities across global agricultural markets. As we think about how this industry continues to change in the years ahead of us, I think that quote tells us a lot about how some of the big grain traders are viewing the world of international trade. The importance that Viterra is putting on having assets literally all around the globe in every single major production region indicates to me that, that they might be a little concerned about the potential upsets we could see in the world of uh, geopolitical trade. It is important for these grain buyers to be able to have access to goods. The reason this matters, I think, especially in 2022, is because we have seen port closures around the world over the last two years, largely obviously due to coronavirus and uh, employees and, and dock workers catching the, uh, the virus and you know, slowing down their work. But as we look out over this next year, there is some concerns developing that should Omicron break out of containment in China in a big way, which is what we've seen in most of the, the rest of the world. It's been really tough to contain this particular variant. If it were to jump to the ports, we could see China move fairly quickly to shut down entire port cities, which would hamstring Global trade, obviously, it would hamstring container shipping, the stuff we're buying, the goods that are you know currently sitting off the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach down in Southern California. But if they shut ports in China, that is also going to stop the flow of grain into that country. So this is a major risk that's developing. And the changes to the political world, the idea that we're not one big happy global family anymore, which was, I think, the the presentation of international trade for the past 15 years, we're seeing some differences and some discrepancies and some arguments 
develop when we look to international trade. And these are the kind of things that could continue to dog us. So do be aware, as this industry continues to turn, I think we are going to see more of these large multinationals making aggressive plays to try and get themselves into a place where they can make some aggressive moves. Uh, now, I did want to say, Jerry, I don't know if we are going to be able to get Jerry back on the call today. We're having a little bit of internal struggles, but he is right now out at the International Dairy Foods Association Dairy Forum and we will be getting an update from the dairy forum here at some point i apologize it won't be today but we are going to touch on what is happening in the dairy industry because oh boy when you talk about international trade dairy is a place where that is going to be noticed i did want to jump in take a quick look at the markets we'll be talking to uh duane bussey here later on in the program about everything that's going on and I tell you, folks, there is a lot of stuff going on in the trade right now. We are seeing a little bit of a pullback as we as we look out really across a lot of different commodity markets today. There is some uh, some concerns. Obviously, we heard from Ed earlier in the show about the moves that have been happening, yeah, the rainfall down in South America. And we are also seeing some concerns about ethanol stocks building. Dwayne and I will touch on that in just a little bit. But if we're going to be talking ethanol later on in the program, I think it helps to have an idea of what's going on with crude oil. And folks, that market has been moving. March West Texas crude currently trading at $87, $87.70. I mean, we're knocking on the door of $88. We saw the Brent crude oil, which is European contracts. That was over $90 today. This move, this move by large-scale energy purchasers to try and secure their needs is huge. You couple a move up like this we're currently seeing in crude oil with the fact that the U.S. economy was growing at nearly 7% in the fourth quarter of 2021, all explains why we are seeing this continued push into energies. The idea is we are going to be watching this energy market as an indication as to how these uh, markets could move forward during the uh, the next couple of months. Energy is going to be one of the key focuses. I also want to provide quick update. It sounds like we've got a little bit of room to breathe on the Ukraine situation. Russia has said uh, they're not thrilled with America's security response, but they do see room for talks, and that's backing a few buyers out of the wheat market. Folks, when AOA returns after the break, we are going to be talking to Paige Gilliard. She is one of the attorneys who will be on the team presenting a clean water case to the Supreme Court court of the United States. Do stick around. We'll get her story when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business with than ever before. We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. 
considering an online pharmacy? Explore BeSafeRx to find useful information and resources to help you purchase medicines safely online. A safe online pharmacy requires a doctor's prescription, has an address in the United States, has a licensed pharmacist, and is licensed by a state pharmacy board. It's best to stay away from online pharmacies that don't meet these criteria. Discover more helpful tips and resources at BeSafeRx. Go to FDA.gov slash BeSafeRx. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. As we take a look at the grain and livestock trade, it is a mixed tone to mostly lower in grains. Wheat futures seeing more profit taking here as we work through the morning hours at Hogs now are triple digits lower here as we work through our morning session. Weekly export sales and shipments were higher for corn, soybeans, and wheat. We saw corn net sales of uh, 1.402 million metric tons, up 29% for the previous week and 84% for the prior four-week average. We saw soybean net sales of 1.025 million metric tons, up 53% for the previous week and 77% for the prior four-week average. We saw wheat net sales 676,700 metric tons, well, marketing year high. We're up 78% for the previous week and up noticeably from the prior four-week average. Now, we watch here with weekly corn export sales stronger than expected, but soybeans and corn both remain ahead of USDA's target in a seasonal sense, though beans have more work to do on an absolute basis in the coming months and with South American supplies coming online shortly. Now, again, the grain complex lagging a bit this morning with a lack of current fundamental drivers and weighed by a surging U.S. dollar. South American weather set to turn more bullish here as we work into February. Also continue to watch the geopolitical issues with Russia, Ukraine, and also the trade is digesting the conclusion of the Fed meeting from yesterday. Few of the numbers right now. March corn down four, three quarters, six twenty-two and a quarter. March beans down two and a half, fourteen thirty-seven and a half. Bean meal a little lower, bean oil a little higher. March Chicago wheat twenty and a quarter lower, seven seventy-four three quarters. March KC wheat down nineteen, seven ninety-six and three quarters. March spring wheat down twelve, nine oh four and a quarter. February hogs one thirty-five lower, eighty-six sixty-seven. February live kettle down forty, one thirty-seven sixty-five. Crude oil up fifty-one cents, eighty-seven eighty-six. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Our next guest is Paige Gilliard. Paige is an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation. Now, this is a name you might have heard recently because last week it was announced that the Supreme Court will hear a challenge to the Clean Water Act brought by an Idaho couple named the Sacketts. Well, Paige is one of three attorneys who will be on the team litigating this case. Paige, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today and to explain really what's been going on with this Clean Water Act case. Happy to. Thanks for having me, Mike. So this case really started and Oh, go ahead. Uh, you were on the right page. I was going to say, tell me how this case got started. All right. Well, this case started in April of 2007 when the Sackets broke ground on their property in a largely built-out residential subdivision near Priest Lake in Idaho. Now, it's important to note that their lot is boarded on all sides by either homes or roads. Now, the nearest navigable water is Priest Lake, and the Sackett's lot is separated from Priest Lake by a road and an additional row of homes. Now, despite being a significant distance from Priest Lake, EPA sent out investigators to check the site for Clean Water Act compliance, and they verbally informed the construction crew that they needed to stop all work because they were violating the Clean Water Act. They followed up that verbal command with an administrative compliance order telling the Sackets that their lot contained federally protected wetlands and that they needed a permit from the Army to build their home. And it should be worth noting, I think, Paige, that this is a 0.63-acre lot, as you mentioned, in a housing subdevelopment. Tell us, where did they believe the the connection to the navigable water was happening on this property. Where was the wetland? So according to EPA, the property is the wetland, and it's connected, in their opinion, to a small ditch. The problem there is this small ditch is across the street. There is no surface water connection to the small ditch. But according to EPA, their property impacts the small ditch, which eventually, after going a lot a ways away travels into Priest Lake. But if you were to stand okay. on this property today, you would see no connection to this ditch. Interesting. And so they're alleging that this subsurface connection exists. And so because the water from this property could get into Priest Lake, which I imagine is navigable, that's where they're saying this, this violates the Clean Water Act. Is that right? Correct. Okay, so the Sackets have been fighting this, and Paige, what strikes me as so bizarre is this is not their first time in front of the Supreme Court. Their battles have been dragging on for 15 years. What was the battle that took them to the Supreme Court first? Right, so we were at the Supreme Court in 2012 because um, when the Sackets initially brought this case contesting the EPA's jurisdiction in 2008, EPA told them that they didn't even have a right to be in court in the first place. So we went up to the Supreme Court on the question of whether they could even challenge EPA's jurisdiction over their property. And in 2012, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled in our favor that, yes, this is something that can be heard in federal court. So first step was fighting to get recognition of the ability to fight this case. And now we are actually taking the case to the Supreme Court. Paige, as you prepare your arguments for the Supreme Court of the United States, what are the key points that the Pacific Legal Foundation is going to be making to, to help the Sackets here? I think it's important to note that it shouldn't take a squad of scientists, land use experts, and attorneys to determine whether or not someone can make productive use of their property. And this is especially true in a case like the Sackett. 
We have a completely otherwise built out residential subdivision that the EPA is saying is technically a water under the Clean Water Act. That just doesn't make common sense. So we'll be asking the court to determine whether or not the EPA can actually regulate this property and when essentially the wetland a water under the Clean Water Act. Okay. And Paige, all of this is happening here in 2022. Tell us, when do you think this case will be in front of the Supreme Court? I imagine it takes some time to get everything on their docket. It does. um, Most likely in October. Okay. So most likely by October, Supreme Court will be hearing this case. In the interim, Paige, we've got an EPA right now working on a new Waters of the U.S. rule. How could that intersect or impact this case as you look out over the remainder of this summer? You know, I I don't expect it to have a significant impact because we have gone through different rulemakings involving what is a water of the United States since this case started. And in all of those instances, there's just been consistent confusion on what exactly that means. Ultimately, we need the Supreme Court to come in and guide the agencies and the regulated public and provide some clarity in this instance. And what sort of clarity would you like to see? Let's think back to the Supreme Court. Obviously, WOTUS is going to be what it's going to be. But on a Supreme Court decision of this magnitude, where the couple was being faced with fines of $75,000 per day back when this alleged violation first occurred, Paige, what do you want the Supreme Court to decide? We need a clear test. What should it look like here under CWA? Well, we would like the court to go back to their split decision in Rapanos that happened in 2006 and adopt what we call the Scalia plurality test. And under that test, a wetland can be regulated only if it directly abuts another regulated water. And there has to be a continuous surface water connection such that the wetland and the abutting water are essentially indistinguishable. Now, that would provide a lot of clarity because you wouldn't have a situation like we have here where you can't even see water, but EPA is still asserting that they can control the property. Yes, and you mentioned that Rapanos decision. It was a split decision. Paige, you talked to the Scalia uh, argument right there. What was the other split? And uh, as a legal novice, how can the Supreme Court split on an issue and have that be policy? So that's a, that's a great question. Um, in terms of what the other test was, that's the Kennedy significant nexus test. And under that test, you can regulate a wetland essentially if it or in combination with other wetlands significantly affect what he says are the physical, chemical, or biological integrity of other waters. So that's not a very clear test. That's part of why we're here. You can essentially rope in anything you want under that test. Um, and in terms of how the decision was split, in that case, all the, um, the majority of the court agreed that there were certain wetlands you couldn't regulate, but they couldn't come up with a clear test for why. So you had four justices who signed on to the Kennedy test, and then another four who signed on to the Scalia plurality, and it's ultimately been left to the lower courts to decide which test to adopt. Interesting. So that was a four and four decision. And there was one dissent. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So this Mm -hmm. this gave the EPA, they had equal majorities on both the Scalia test and the Kennedy test. So then EPA effectively got to pick which one it operated under. And it sounds like they chose significant nexus back in 2012. Yes. Okay. It's the one that gives them the most authority. They, They can regulate more under the significant nexus test. Absolutely. And so in order to decide whether or not a property qualifies under the significant nexus test to be overseen by the Clean Water Act, it's all about 
well, the significant nexus. That water has to have enough of a connection. And who decides, Paige, who decides what's enough of a connection to make it a significant nexus? Is it just somebody at the EPA? Um, in terms of whether or not they believe there's jurisdiction, yes. If someone at the EPA makes that decision, um, as you can imagine, they're, they're going to say that they do have control over the property. Yes, I imagine they would. So let's assume uh, that things go well for the Pacific Legal Foundation and the Sacketts in October. The uh, Supreme Court cleans up the Rapanos decision. We get a bright line test for waters of the U.S. Paige, how many other folks could be impacted by this? And I guess the other part of that question is, if a WOTUS comes out with a significant nexus test, and then the Supreme Court rules that really the Kennedy, or excuse me, the Scalia test is what we should use, Will we be throwing out the WOTUS that we're writing right now? I mean, they would have to because um, government regulation has to be consistent with Supreme Court opinion. So if that happens, they would have to go back to the drawing board. Um, we believe that the court is well positioned to rule in our favor here. The facts are very compelling. Um, like I mentioned before, it shouldn't take a squad of people to decide whether or not you can use your property. This case really does have has far-reaching implications. Um, here we have a couple with a... Uh, a lot in a residential subdivision, but it impacts them, it impacts farmers, it impacts anyone who wants to build on land that the EPA could come over and say, this is a potentially damp property. Yeah, yeah, and the ability that it, it's, it's a black box decision. We don't know what goes into making up the significant nexus test necessarily when an EPA engineer comes out and says, well, this is a, this is covered by the Clean Water Act. That sort of frustration must be just mind boggling for landowners who are caught in this, uh, this hazy area. It's very frustrating. And as you mentioned, um, violations of the Clean Water Act are, are pretty severe. They can range from crushing monetary penalties to even jail time. So it's crucially important that the Supreme Court gets this right. It certainly is. Paige, you mentioned that you feel well-positioned to uh, to take this case, win this case at the Supreme Court. As you look at the uh, at the justices that are currently seated, uh, who do you think is going to be most receptive to the arguments uh, PLF is going to be making? You know, it, it, like I said before, it's a bit difficult to make predictions, but um, at least in terms of what happened in Rapanos, Justice Roberts, Thomas, and Alito did join um, the late Justice Scalia's opinion in that case. So I think they for sure will at least be um, very interested in whether or not that should become the predominant test. Okay. So, Paige, uh, Pacific Legal Foundation, you guys have been doing a lot to defend property rights and additional stuff for folks who want to keep an eye on this issue. Where can they go to keep up to speed? Uh, you guys can check out our website, pacificlegal.org. Pacificlegal.org. Folks, this was Paige Gilliard, one of the attorneys presenting this case to the Supreme Court. Paige, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, and hopefully we can get some clarity on this matter next fall. Thank you. And, and folks, stick around. We'll be talking to Dwayne Bussey about what's moving the markets when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. 
maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. And in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. Head to toe, everything's changed. Head to toe. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. For more than 135 years, the editors of Progressive Farmer have provided generations of farmers and ranchers with the information they need and trust to make informed and profitable decisions. We know you need that content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we created our weekly podcast called Field Posts. Join me, Sarah Mock, each week as I interview agriculture's top thought leaders, as well as farming's most diverse team of editors at the Progressive Farmer and DTN on a wide range of subject matter. From farm policy and crop production to finances, technology, and so much more, you'll have a front row seat to learn and engage in what's happening in agriculture today. You can find the podcast listed on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or by visiting our website at dtnpf.com backslash field posts. Recently on Agriculture of America, John Holzman, he's the geopolitical strategist and managing partner at John C. Holzman Enterprises. John, let's talk odds. You mentioned you see Putin making a move. If you had to lay a, a figure on it, would you say it's over 50 percent? I do. It's about 60. It's not a sure thing, uh, but it's more likely than many of my competitors are saying because Putin can do it. He wants to settle the matter of Russian nationalism. He wants a borderline of states sympathetic to him from Belarus through the Caucasus, through Ukraine, and into even the Balkans, as well as the Middle East, to protect Russia, Mother Russia, from possible invasion and to keep the West farther away. And that's how Putin looks at the world, again, like a Russian czar. And it sounds like the Ukraine would fight in some capacity to repel an invasion, but it could be quite a battle. It could fight, and its army is much better than it was in 2014. It's much better trained, but the Russian army is superior. For the information important to rural America, join us on Agriculture of America. Today, more than 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's. 
and more than 11 million family members and friends serve as their caregivers. While researchers are working tirelessly to end Alzheimer's and all other dementia, the number of people living with Alzheimer's is expected to more than double by 2050. The toll of the disease is monumental, and its devastation affects family, friends, and especially caregivers. No one should face Alzheimer's and dementia by themselves. If you or someone you know is struggling to provide care to a loved one, please share this message. You are not alone. Free help and resources are available 24-7. To talk with an expert and obtain disease-related information, care and support services, call 800-272-3900 or visit the Alzheimer's Association website at alz.org. You are not alone. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Boy, I tell you what, folks, it's going to be interesting to watch that dance between the EPA and the crafting of WOTUS here over the next several months and what could happen with that Clean Water Act case of the Sacketts before the Supreme Court in October. We will be keeping an eye on that issue and hopefully getting regular updates as it gets closer to court. Let's talk markets, folks. We've got some red on the screen today to help me understand a little bit better. Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing in Britain, South Dakota joins us. Dwayne, wheat is seeing a sell-off today. Is this just traders maybe getting a little more relaxed about the Russia-Ukraine situation? Yeah, that's exactly what it is here. You know, we, we rallied up on the uncertainty and uh, fear that Russia was going to invade. And then, yeah, about midweek here, we started to hear more rumors and talks that, well, it's not going to happen anytime soon. And you go back to 2014 when we had the same type of setup, Russia knocking on the door of Ukraine. They, they actually did wait till after the Winter Olympics. So it's the very same similar setup here. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's what the trade is believing right now. It'll be the end of February if Russia does invade. So that, that gave this market reason to take some of the premium that we recently built out of the market now. So how much downside risk do you think is there? I mean, we built a lot of premium into that wheat market, Dwayne, over the last two weeks. Yeah, we did. You know, when I pulled up Chicago March wheat here, we're back down to some key moving averages, the 20-day, 50-day, uh, you know, two I like to watch, and we got right down to that at the lows today. So I guess I'm trying to say that I could see it finding support right around here, but, you know, if you don't have an invasion and you don't have a bullish story coming up anytime soon. I, I don't know if wheat's got any momentum to keep going higher, so the bears may win out a little bit. But the funds are probably close to flat this market, actually. You know, they had short positions going into this week. I think they liquidated all of them. And so maybe sideways right here for a little while. Okay. Uh, Dwayne, since you're up there in the plains, I imagine you talk to a lot of guys who are spring wheat growers. What have you heard? Do you have any acreage thoughts on spring wheat over this next year up there in North Dakota, Montana, and Minnesota? Yeah. When it gets up to North Dakota and 
It really comes down to weather in the spring will dictate what we plant. We we often have plans, but they they get changed and distorted. And right now, looking out my office window, I can tell you there's quite a snowpack up here in even northeast South Dakota. Uh, you get north of me in the Red River Valley here from Fargo, North Dakota South, there's a lot of snow. What I'm trying to get at is if the snow gets away, uh, this blind man table and I think a rally in spring wheat prices this spring will buy the acres. And I think North Dakota guys want to plant the wheat. But I'm saying it's very dependent on this weather. If we have a slow thaw and we can't get out there early, it'll probably shift to the soybean acres. And remember, another thing, we get up this far north, the prevent plant tends to be that third or fourth crop that we end up having. We never like it, but it happens up here almost record low prevent plant acres last year. And, uh, you know, we get back to average. I'm just going to have to take some acres off the national balance sheet, basically. Well, that's the truth. And you mentioned that snowpack up there in North Dakota, all through the Red River Valley, all through the, you know, the northern Missouri River Valley. I've got to imagine there are some folks who are getting concerned about flooding. Should it warm up pretty quick, Dwayne? Well, absolutely. We always look at the Red River that runs uh, basically right from my area and runs north. And we always kind of joke that uh, on about the eighth day, God looked down and said, oh, man, I made a river run north through the uh, North Dakota. That wasn't smart. Yeah, <laughs> flooding is, is always a concern as it's frozen up further north than we saw from the south here. Um, you know, North Dakota was in a massive drought last year. Everyone knows about that. Really horrible corn, wheat, and soybean yields. It got wetter towards fall, which was really kind of a knife in the back for a lot of producers. They had to kind of mud the harvest off that was there. So we've replenished those soils, which is fine. But, yeah, we don't have a lot of reserve for extra moisture. So I said, I'm going to be watching the weather in North Dakota really close this spring. Um, Yeah, flooding is a concern. Hopefully it's not. They really deserve to get the crop planted and have a nice crop in North Dakota this year. Yeah, yeah, they could certainly use a break. Uh, Dwayne, while we got you, let's talk about this corn market. North of $6, old crop in the 620s. Boy, is this a time to pull the trigger on some sales, or is there more gas in the tank? Oh, man, if I'm looking at my spreadsheet and I'm doing proper risk management, I'm going to say absolutely sell. Look at all the money you're making. But i I got to tell you, just watching the trade and, and thinking of the demand in front of us for U.S. corn, I think there's more upside here, Mike. I, I, I look at July corn, and, and I notice there's a gap up there around that 683 on a continuous chart, and I, I feel like we could maybe get up there. But, boy, from 640, which is other resistance, to 680, I, as a producer myself, it's going to be really hard to hold on to corn. you got to be letting it go in that area. Looking over at new crop, Dwayne, obviously we've still got the acreage mix question in front of us. We've got a lot of production questions in front of us. We've got South American production in front of us. Are you pulling the trigger on any new crop sales or are you going to let the market come to you a little bit more? You know, as crazy as this sounds, and maybe remind me a year from now, I'm going to wait here. I, I know there's great profits you can lock in, and, and you know, if a guy wants to sell, I'm not stopping him. But kind of the same deal. I just see more upside. I see the bullish story in the old crop corn, like I just mentioned. But this acreage battle, I look at spring wheat, corn, and soybeans. One of those three is just going to be short acres. I just I don't think we have enough acres, and that's even with low prevent plant acres. So uh, I, I'm going to wait on new crop sales a little bit longer here and wait and get in, get into about a month get in the real heart of this acreage battle then probably look to start put some on Dwayne, we're taking a look at the soybean market here new crop is moving to the upside uh, are you pulling the trigger on new crop bean sales yet or are you still waiting on that too 
You know, I'm waiting on that, too, and that's just kind of a recent development. Uh, I think China's in here this past week buying our new crop, soybeans, not the old crop, which is a little disappointing for the bulls. Uh, but that has me going out looking at my next year's S&D table and increasing exports there uh, for our soybeans. Remember, China, actually, their imports were down this year. That's not bearish then, if you ask me. It just means the next year they're going to have to jack up that much more to buy more. So with Brazil having trouble and Argentina obviously having trouble and their production is going to be down, I'm bullish for new crop soybeans. But the old crop soybeans, oh, I'm I'm dumping them like a bad habit up here right now. (laughs) All right. Get those old crop beans moved. Dwayne Bussey, I'm very excited. We'll be picking Dwayne's brain this weekend on this weekend agribusiness. So be sure to tune into that. Dwayne, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, anytime, Mike. And folks, thanks so much for tuning in to AOA. We'll be back tomorrow talking the fertilizer market with Jason Trundle of the Fertilizer Institute and Arlen Suderman will be joining to talk about these markets. So we'll see you tomorrow for AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. 